title of my message tonight is living an alternative lifestyle. And I think I remember hearing that term, an alternative lifestyle, probably when I was in high school, a bit a while ago. And I heard it also, not just with lifestyles, but like music being described like that, alternative music, right? Um, maybe some of you appreciate alternative medicine, right? You've heard of that. Alt rock, my son's an alternative rock style band. Alternative lifestyle was something I actually ended up looking up because as I thought about this message and what we were going to talk about tonight, I thought, let me make sure I've got this right. So I looked up in the Urban Dictionary, it was in there, alternative lifestyle. And here's the definition, a lifestyle perceived to be outside the norm for a given culture. And I couldn't think of a better description than of exactly what Christians are. We are living an alternative lifestyle. People like to say they're alternative, but really they're just part of another deviant group <laughs> breaking away from God's way of doing things. That's wrong. That's what culture is. As Christians, our call all throughout the word of God is actually to be the ones who are living the alternative lifestyle. The norm of society is self-seeking. It's self-justifying. Um, even for people who consider themselves indies or edgy, <laughs> um, people who consider themselves sexually free and not bound by norms, it's, it's, it's such an old story. It's been around. That's not alternative. Alternative is doing it God's way. That is the alternative lifestyle. And so our call then is to reject that, identify it, see it for what it actually is, and know that the only true lifestyle that's alternative is the only lifestyle that'll end up mattering. And that's what we're all about. And that's what Second Corinthians is moving us into and helping us to see as well. So beginning with that, it always begins with our identity, which is why every single one of these lessons I've asked us to kind of go back to the beginning of First Corinthians and rethink through who we are in Christ and state that together. And um, so Paul ends up writing the second letter, which is actually probably his fourth letter to the church that's set up in Corinth. And if you've got your Bibles, you can read along with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and I'm reading out of the ESV, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting about the difference between the opening of this letter, Paul's letters open up very similar, every letter, but this letter is different from 1 Corinthians because in 1 Corinthians he says, basically to the church of God that is at Corinth. And here he adds, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. There's a little bit of a broader scope here in this letter. And what that says to me is Paul's influence, the people that he's ministering to, how he's moving around, how he's connecting is broadening. And he's making the inroads in all these other places. And we've seen that. And you even see that in the way he's talking about all of his travels. And it's hard to fathom back in that those days, let alone even today, going and being and doing all the things that Paul was able to accomplish. So he says next, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies 
and God of all comfort. And that word there, comfort, is a familiar word. It's the word parakaleo. And we've had that in, in previous studies as well. Earlier, we talked about the Greek word there, who comforts us in all of our affliction. This word affliction is from the Greek word thlipsis, and it means pressing, pressing in so that you're feeling oppressed and pressed in from every side of you. And the idea of comfort here, if we understand the Greek, is really helpful. Because when you first read the word comfort, or maybe in your translation it says compassion, you think of, or I do, it comes, it comes across like, oh, it's going to be okay. Like maybe you're pulling a child alongside of you and comforting them when they're crying because they couldn't figure out how to tie their shoelaces, right? Or they're talking to a friend and, and they're, plants didn't get watered and their plant died. I don't know, it, it feels a little lighter than what it actually means. It's not that. The word comfort actually comes from the idea of strengthen. So yes, you're comforted in that sense, like we think of it, but the word meaning is strengthen. Because it's one thing to be comforted in the sense that I'm saying, like, oh man, that's tough, and I'm, I'm here with you. And it means that, there's a sense in which this word means advocate, because we, the Spirit is our advocate, the parakaleo, the one who comes alongside with us, the Holy Spirit is talked about like that. But the idea here, it's very important, is strengthen. So blessed be the God then who strengthens us in all of our pressing in, all of our thalipsis, right? all the ways that we are pressed in from every side. The Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all, all our afflictions so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, anything that's going on with anybody else around us, God has given us. Now, here's what's beautiful about this passage as a reminder. And Paul's echoing what he's already taught in 1 Corinthians. And that reminder is, it's not just me, it's we we are the body of Christ because what I've experienced is going to enable me to strengthen and comfort people that God brings in my path. And what you've experienced and what you and you and you and you and all of you have experienced is going to give you a way to strengthen and comfort. And here's what's beautiful about coming together and sharing our stories in our small groups, hearing my story, if I shared here, hearing out on the patio and all of our life corners that we're in. You're going to hear a story of a friend who's gone through this situation. And as a Christian, as a believer, that's going to enrich your ability then to turn around and comfort and strengthen other people. And if you're at a loss for how to comfort or strengthen somebody else, you, that person's going to come to your mind and say, oh, my gosh, you're going to need to talk to my friend because she's been through what you're talking about. And she knows even better. And one of the things that's so beautiful about God's word is there's nothing in what, he, what we're learning in God's word that isn't true about anybody in, engaged in any relationship, even if they didn't have the word of God, if they didn't even know Jesus, these are just great principles. Everyone knows about empathy. Everybody knows about coming alongside. 12-step programs and other programs like that, counseling, they're all built on that principle. So this isn't exclusive to God's word, but the truth is from God's word. And the only way it actually matters or actually does land well and bring true hope, because my comfort isn't comfort for just this world. What I'm offering somebody when I have comfort is I have hope beyond what I have here. Otherwise, it's just patronizing. Everything's going to work out okay. It's not if you don't have Jesus. So the strengthening I can offer is completely different than what the world offers. Again, these are this is very common 
language for anybody who has empathy and sharing. But when we remove Jesus out of it, it becomes empty. Because on what is that based? What is that based on? If I offer strengthening or I offer comfort to somebody, it's just a nice thing to say. It's a kind thing to say. It's a moral thing to say. It's an ethical thing to say. But it's ultimately meaningless if, if there's nothing behind it that lasts for eternity. And that's what Paul's whole point is going to be. I want you to jump ahead to the end of chapter 3. He says in verse 18, and we all with unveiled face, you see comforters who comfort without Christ, their faces are veiled. Their words are veiled. They don't see the big picture. They can't. They're blinded. They're blinded by the God of this world, right? He says, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see the book ends there? In the opening of chapter 1 to the ending of chapter 3, that's what matters. We have the comfort that can comfort all through every pressing in, every strengthening that needs to happen, only because our faces are not veiled anymore, right? And so Paul's going to bring all that together as he talks through what's going to happen and every single point he's going to make about his personal story, what he's been going through, them making accusations against him. It's all going to go, oh, that makes so much more sense now because <laughs> it's just him whining and complaining or them whining and accusa uh, accusing if it's not about the furthering of the mission of the gospel of Christ, right? So he says in verse 5, for as we share... Uh, abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too, or in strengthening too. As we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. Which is an astounding statement because you all know what Christ went through. You all know he went to the cross. And so to even begin to imagine that we could possibly share in Christ's sufferings should put us at, we what? How is that even possible? But see, what's exciting about what Christ has done for us is he's invited us in to be brothers, sisters with him. But it's also an invitation, not only just to, not only to the wisdom and the power and the strength that he has, but to the sufferings that he has been through. And we can partake in that with him. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing to be invited into that because that's where the strength comes from. Again, it's empty. It's a platitude. If there's no weight to it, based in reality of who Jesus is. It says, if we are afflicted, pressed, thupsis, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted or strengthened, I'm in verse 6, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Now, right here in verse 6, I think Paul... Do you know how you kind of talk someone into something without them knowing it? Mm -hmm. Or prepare them in advance for what they should expect, and then they're just ready, like, oh, yeah, we totally do that. Listen again to, with that mindset of how Paul is wording this. He says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. <laughs> in other words, patiently endure the sufferings you're suffering. <laughs> <laughs> like he is, he's telling them in an affirming way, but really they're not doing that. They're not being patient. 
They're being ornery. They were in 1 Corinthians, and they're doing it again in 2 uh, verse 7. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort or our strengthening. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Underline that, who raises the dead. See, that's the anchor of everything. Because listen, if God didn't raise Jesus from the dead, then he didn't fulfill his promises. He didn't do what he said he would do. If I have any doubts in my faith, and I shared with you in our last study together that that has been a struggle for me. I, I constantly cycle through that. But you know, when I begin that doubt cycle that's so familiar in my personal walk, you know what always brings me back? Jesus did raise from the dead. That did get accomplished. I don't have to doubt. And I can, I can find myself blurry and in a pudding of thought, I think of it like that in a pudding of thought, like it's all just like jumbled and gooshy out there in my brain. But when things get sorted out and back to reality, it always comes back to this point and creation. If God can do that, and God raised Jesus from the dead, then every single thing in between that was true, and what I'm going through now has hope. I think of it this way. Have you ever had one of those sorting machines? Maybe if you had kids with Legos, and you had like uh, the Legos of all the different sizes and you, if you put them all in and it shakes, or maybe when you were homeschooling your kids or maybe when you were in school and you had to shake and sort things out and you put all the sand and uh, the big pieces would, would stay on the top of the smaller and smaller and smaller because you had smaller and smaller holes and finally everything was in its own level tray. Have you seen those before? You shake and shake and shake. Oh, it's a really cool invention. And it's kind of mesmerizing to watch if you go to the YouTube channels and see them. They have people doing it and it all sorts into these perfect piles. If you take a big blob of all these stones mixed with pebbles, mixed with smaller stones, mixed with even smaller and smaller and smaller, and you pile them into one, and then they have these layers and you start rattling it and shaking it and everything else settles into the right layer because of sorting it by size that's what affliction does that's what affliction does it presses in and shakes us and strengthens us so everything gets into order where it needs to be right so my mind isn't putting thoughts anymore it's concrete and it's ordered because I go back to creation and I come back then to Christ's resurrection from the dead and everything's as it should be I, I would just be honest with you right now. I just wish it would stay right there. I'm telling you, I go to sleep and everything just gets jumbled up again. And I wake up the next morning and the next day hits. And I'm like, all right, here we go, Lord. Shake me back into reality again. And I need that. That's just how my, my brain and my faith work, apparently. Thank you, Jesus, right? So he delivered us, verse 10. He delivered us from such deadly peril. And he will deliver us. Why does Paul know that? Because he delivered Jesus. You see, his his faith isn't based on the experiences of the people that he's shoulder to shoulder with only. His faith is based on the vertical relationship of what Christ has already accomplished. He did raise Jesus from the dead. I am going to be raised from the dead. I will be strengthened in my affliction. He said, on him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You, and this is so beautiful, verse 11, you also must help by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us 
through the prayers of many. Do you see what a beautiful invitation this is that Paul has such strength of his faith to know that prayer accomplishes things? right? Do you see why I'm impassioned each week to remind you to get on the app, remind you to pray for each other? I'll say it from church on Sundays in the announcements and just, I, I, using Paul's words, I beseech you, join the community of prayer. Pray for each other, right? It accomplishes great things. What great hope I have knowing as I share my prayer request that somebody else is lifting me up. I'm not alone. I might not see you face to face, but I know that I know there are prayer warriors out there who are faithful. They'll even set their timer. See, I, I set my timer at 8.03 or whatever the time is to pray for you. I do the same. And Paul has that with no timer, just reminding them to pray. Verse 12, for our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that's integrity, we, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so toward you. Listen, in Paul's day, it was very vogue to stand in the agora, the courtyard in the center of town, this open area, and expound, and people would just stop to listen to you. In Paul's day, people could just stop right there, like a little platform right there. And people would stop and listen to the guy go on and on about philosophy and his religious beliefs and what he's thinking and going on. Has our society changed at all? <laughs> no. Because we have a little app that we can do that on now. We all have it right in our phones. We don't need an agora and a square and a, and a, and a podium to stand on. I've got a phone and I can blast out on Twitter. I can blast it out on Instagram or Facebook or YouTube or whatever and share with the world all my little thoughts. And Paul's beauty and what he says here, listen to his careful wording when he says, we are not, uh, uh, we behaved in the world with what? Simplicity, simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely toward you. We took it easy. We made it simple. We're not complicating things for we're not writing to you anything other than what you read and understand. And I hope you will fully understand just as you did partially understand us that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Now I want you to underline this and maybe make a note somehow to come back to this because in your next lesson coming up, this is going to come up again. Right? I'm going to nudge you toward a couple things that you're going to head into on this upcoming lesson. But he says, just as you did partially understand that on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast. This is a man of incredible confidence. You know, growing up in the church, and I'm very thankful for this and having the word of God in me and, and parents and church and all the things that poured the spirit of God into my mind. One of the verses that is embedded in me from a child is the heart of man is deceitful and wicked who can understand it i think my mom might have quoted that to me every other day <laughs> she's a good mother our hearts are deceptive and we cannot trust them that's why it's so silly when we hear the little phrase follow your heart really i'm gonna follow the most wretched depraved part of my entire being i don't think so i don't think so which is why Paul's statement here about his conscience is so astounding. Because when you think about the Christian belief and our understanding of how clouded we are and how we are so self-serving, Paul to be able to say that his conscience is really clear on this is amazing. This is a man who has a very deep relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And there's been seasons in my life where I have been prompted by the Holy Spirit to say, God, tighten it up with me. Because you know the Bible verse that tells us that wide is the path to destruction and narrow. I told the Lord, I said, I, mine, I am st it's too wide. I need a more narrow path. I got too much wiggle room going on. I, I, I'm not trusting myself. I'm avoiding responsibilities and I'm doing things out of spite or I'm doing things out of jealousy. Or I, I don't check my, check my motives and tighten it up. And I prayed that to God. I'm telling you right now, don't pray that prayer unless you mean it. God will do it. <laughs> and I couldn't go a day. I couldn't go a day without God just going, nope, do this. And I'll tell you what that did in that season of my life. I needed it. It removed the inability for me to make in the moment decisions like from that point forward, I tightened up my ability to make decisions and if I should do something or not, because I was just so tight with what God wanted. I believe that's an important prayer to be willing to pray. And it seems to me that Paul is a man along those lines who has such a clear conscience because he does exactly and only what he knows God will have him to do. So he has his conscience so much so that he says on the day of our Lord Jesus, the final day, we will boast. You will boast of us and we will boast of you. He's that confident. Ladies, honest to goodness, I feel like I have that exact same confidence with you. I know you love the Lord. I see it in how you're living your lives. I see it in how you're engaging with each other. And it's exciting as a pastor to be able to say, this is really a great group of women who are on fire for Jesus and want to do even more. In verse 15, he says, because I was sure of this, I wanted to come to you first. So he's building them all up. He's telling them, this is, I, I'm confident. I have faith. I have trust. It's all rooted in Jesus Christ. I, I was simple with you. I have integrity with you. And then he moves into this whole next discussion. It's going to be about how they didn't trust him. And they're whining and complaining about what they think he's doing and questioning his motives. I wanted to come to you first so that you might have a second experience of grace, right? I wanted to visit you all on my way to Macedonia and come back to you from Macedonia and have you send me on my way to Judea. Was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? In other words, somebody's accusing him of vacillating. So this is why we know there was a, a letter, a dialogue before this letter. He's not going to bring up a topic that's out of nowhere. Someone's accusing him of vacillating. The probability, it's likely, that after his prior letter, when he lights him up, 1 Corinthians, and his visit after that, which he refers to in a minute, uh, the sorrowful, painful visit that he has, the people didn't like that much. And so when you don't like what you're being told, you don't like when someone's calling you out on your sin, you have two choices. Get your act together and repent anyway, even though you don't like it, or turn on the person who's pointing out your sin. And so there's a, some kind of a group in there who's turned on Paul and they're made, saying things, maybe not, they're not gonna bring up his theology because they're not smart enough to argue the debates of the matter of theology. So they'll just say, well, we can't trust him. He's vacillating. He says, was I vacillating when I wanted to do this? Do I make plans according to the flesh? No, he's just said earlier, he doesn't. He, in fact, he's ready to stand before the Lord. Mm -hmm. He's so confident. He doesn't make plans according to the flesh. He makes it in God, ready to say yes, yes, and then out of the other side of my mouth, no, no, you know. At the same time, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has been yes and no. I want you to underline that. Verse 18, as surely as who is faithful? God is faithful. You see, how many times over and over again has the mantra of our study been, what does it say to be true about God? What do you read about God? 
What does this teach you about the character of God? Over and over and over again, the point of our study is not to get to know yourself better, because you will along the way. It's first to get to know God better. And that's exactly what's rooted in Paul's confidence here. He knows God's truth and how steady God is. That's why he can say with confidence, this wasn't in the flesh. He said, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has not been yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, which is Silas also, and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. Not that every single thing someone asked Paul to do, he'd be saying yes to. He's not a yes man. But he's saying it's, it's in the affirmative. I'm in agreement with every promise of God because every promise of God is a yes. And it's all been fulfilled in Jesus. He says, uh, for all the promises of God, verse 20, find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Amen just means so be it. We agree with that, right? And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and also has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Another thing that uh, underline and make a note of it. It's going to come up in your next passage, the seal of the Holy Spirit and the guarantee. Paul's going to bring that back in as well. But I call God to witness. So here we go again, him bringing down the truth about who God is and then letting God stand with him as he makes this promise to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. I wasn't vacillating. In other words, it's just, it's, it's been about my ministry to you. Not that we lord it over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. That is the goal of his ministry. What a beautiful statement. What a powerful thing. And here's another hope I have for you, that you won't see the people behind the pulpit as the people who are in ministry. There's nothing in the Bible that says that. There's nothing in the Bible that talks about that. You are all saints. You are all in ministry. I just happen to be behind a Bible and a stand. You have ministries in every aspect and every corner of your life. And that's another thing you're going to get into in this next lesson coming up even more. I want us to all own that and embrace it, that every corner of our lives is an expectation that we're in ministry and not to leave that up to the people with some type of a title. For I made up my mind, chapter two, verse one, I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I caused you pain, who was there to make me glad? But the one whom I have pain. And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I had for you. Somehow, in some way, the letter that he did write ripped him up and they're super emotional about it. That's why we, we think someone came back and reported to Paul about this, or there was another letter exchange that, that happened in between what he's writing here. Verse five, for if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Here's an interesting thing about this passage here. As some people think, some scholars think that this guy that Paul's referring to is the guy back in 1 Corinthians who was sleeping with his mother-in-law. And there's messing around that this is the situation going on here. There's some scholarly debate on who the actual guy is, but listen to it and see if you, you might agree with it. If, I, if anyone's caused pain, he has not caused it to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. So whoever this guy was who was misbehaving, he's caused pain not just to me, but to everybody involved. 
for such a one, this guy, this punishment by the majority, he's been punished, right? So is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. In other words, in 1 Corinthians, what did Paul say to do to somebody who's in the body of Christ and not acting like they should? Major sin going on, non-repentant sin, not behaving themselves. Turn them over to Satan. Kick them out. Get them out. You're gonna ruin it. We're gonna ruin the body of Christ. You're gonna ruin our reputation there. Get them out, he says. So apparently they've done this because he goes on to say, I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote that I might test you and know whether you are obedient and everything. In other words, I wrote First Corinthians to test you. You have been obedient. You did punish this guy. You did whatever it needed to take, whatever this guy was. If he was the guy who was sleeping with his mother-in-law or whoever this person was, he got kicked out. And apparently he's repented and he's come back in. And now he's saying, lighten up. It's good. Bring him back in. We're good. He's up, you know, pump the brakes on this, right? So anyone whom you forgive, I also have forgiven. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I've forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. Listen, this passage, this little verse here about being outwitted by Satan is so important that he's connecting it to sin in the church. You see that? Satan is on the move. Satan has a plan. Satan has devices. And he would love to see our churches split over sin. We have to call that out. We have to be alongside of each other and encourage each other and call it out when we see it in the church. That's what's so important about having a fellowship in the church that's wise and rooted in the word. Because if we're just picking out our own little preferences, things that annoy us personally, that's going to destroy the church. But when we're calling out sin because it's against God's word, that's what grows the church, and Satan doesn't want that. Why do you think there are so many churches that aren't preaching the word? Because we're just accepting of everybody's little preferences and everyone's lifestyles, and we're too afraid to say anything, right? So this is all rooted in being able to outwit Satan, confronting each other, and then forgiving and restoring each other. That is the point. It's not for this guy to stay out there. It's for that guy to be restored and to be brought back in. There's nothing for us to have gained and losing him to Satan out there. We want him back. He needs to repent. We want him back in, or, or her back in, if that case may be. Verse 12, and so he goes right into this beautiful passage about the triumph in Christ. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me and the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I didn't find any, uh, any brother Titus, find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on, to Macedonia. But thanks, and this is where I said in your lesson, the great digression begins. So he is talking about this whole passage and then he digresses for quite a while for the next five chapters. And uh, we'll pick that up in chapter 10, I believe. So, but thanks be to God for who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. So listen, when Paul mentions this word triumph, this refers to an actual scenario that would have happened in Greek time where they would have like a ticker tape parade when the hero would come back from battle victory and march through city and everyone would cheer and he might even be marching behind him all the defeated enemy their heads hanging low like you are when you're at the head table in Bunko and you have to walk all the way down to the lowest <laughs> table 
<laughs> or the bunko people know what that's it about. But um, no, you wouldn't do that. <laughs> so the, the head hero comes into town, everyone's cheering, all the slaves are behind him with their head hanging down. But what they've done before the hero comes to town is they've strewn across all the streets fresh flowers and leaves so that as they march through town, the aroma comes up. Now, that aroma is the smell of victory as the, the, the victor comes through town to all the people who are on his side. Everybody who's cheering, yes, he's here, we did it, right? He conquered. So it's victory, it's life to all those who are rejoicing in his victory, but all those who are behind him, all those who are captives, all those who were enslaved, all those who didn't get the victory, right? All those who were outwitted by Satan, they're behind him. And that's a parade of death because that exact same aroma is going up, the Bible says. Everyone's smelling the exact same aroma. Every tongue is going to confess Jesus Christ. Every knee is going to bow. But to some, to life, and others, to death. And that's the visual that he's creating for them because they would have immediately known what a triumph was. That's what that wording means. They would have all known that wording. They would have all probably experienced it, seen it, or heard about it at some point in their life, right? So Paul's creating this beautiful visual imagery. And I love connecting our creating shares to these visual imageries. Aren't you glad I didn't have you do that one? For We, we do clay pots for instead. All right. So... He says, from um, death to death to the other, a fragrance from life to life. And then beautiful. Who is sufficient for these things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, he's already mentioned how he's sincere in the first chapter. And as commissioned by God and the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Who is sufficient for this? The answer is rhetorical. None of us in and of ourselves are sufficient for this. Christ is the victor. Christ is the conqueror. Christ is the one who's paved the way. We're the ones who are enjoying and relishing and, and thankful for the aroma. We're not sufficient, but we couldn't have conquered it. We couldn't have been that, but Christ has gone before us. And then chapter three continues, verse one. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Do we need a, some do some letters of recommendation to you or from you? In other words, all the stuff that's going along, you saying I'm vacillating and you're you know, grumbling and complaining, and they're going to really get into that in the next few chapters, the grumbling and the complaining stuff, the accusations against him. Do we need uh, rec letters again? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on your own hearts to be known and read by all. Listen, they have been transformed. They were dead. They are now alive. They've seen the gospel and it's been made alive in their hearts. They are the letter of recommendation, right? And one of the greatest joys of being a teacher is to have a student come back to you and say, can you write me a letter of recommendation? And an even greater joy, to some degree, is for them to recommend you, right? It's this mutual, beautiful thing because we've seen each other grow. And we've been a part of each other's lives. And that's what Paul is saying. I know you know the truth. You are our letters of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. You know, you show that you are a letter. And here they are reading the actual letter that he's written. And then they're hearing his words. You don't even need this piece of paper that you're reading. You're the letter, he says, from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So such is the confidence that we have through Christ or God, not that we are sufficient, he just said that, who is sufficient, now he's answering his question, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, 
And here is he, he is with the letter again, not of the letter, but of the spirit for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. In other words, don't go back into legalism. Don't go back into the, the, the letter of things and how things are. You have the spirit on your heart. Don't trade that for anything. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters of stone came with such glory. Now, listen, he's already created a visual for them about the ministry of death. Why? Because they have in their head the triumph. And so associated with that triumph is the victor marching and lifting up the aroma under their feet, right? And so he's the victor. There's a good guy. What's associated now in their mind visually, because he's created this, this triumph, is the people enslaved, marching behind. They didn't make it. They're not with the victor. And they're smelling death. Everyone else is smelling flowers, but to them it stinks because they didn't win. And so he goes on about this death imagery here. He says, now at the ministry of death, all those people marching behind the victor with their heads hanging low because they're in chains, they're not free, carved in letters of stone, came with such glory that, uh, that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which is be, with being brought to an end. Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? He's, you see this uh, fortiori, as I said in Latin it was, from strength, he's saying. And he's making this argument. He's saying, if this was great, how much more is that great? If we can visualize this type of human death and this situation and, and, the, and the supposed glory of that type of a victor, how much more is our eternal glory and our eternal victor in Jesus Christ? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, and there was, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, this is the case. What once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what, has, uh, what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such hope, we absolutely have this hope. We are very bold. And here, this should erase any timidity that you have. Now, I get it. You have timidity in your spirit because of your personality style, because of your family upbringing, because of past issues in your life and what happened to you when you weren't, were tried to be a little bit bold and then got shut down and bad experiences happened. But you, and it happens. All of us have to deal with that. We have to get over that. We have to go back to the word and say, I have this hope. I don't have to be that kind of timidity. I have strength because if I am in Christ, he's already at the head of the parade. I'm not in chains behind him anymore. I'm cheering. I'm part of the victory. That should embolden you then to minister to the people in your lives that are lost and need Jesus. You have to go back to who Jesus is in your life. And when you need that kind of a pep talk, go here. Revisit this and be reminded of, of that amazing truth for us. See, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. You have to imagine this, Moses going up to see God, God revealing the law to him. He had to have his face covered when he came down because he had such a huge sunburn. The glory of it blasting out over him would have scared everybody to death. But here's what the issue was. That would have been pretty cool. He put the veil to keep them from being scared, but he also put the veil down so they wouldn't be bummed out that it started to fade. Because the only time he had the glory was when he was in front of Jesus, when he was on the mount with God. And when he would come down, it would just like a sunburn, start to fade away. Now, it wasn't actually a sunburn. You know, I'm using that as a metaphor. But it would start to fade. And there's a couple of reasons for that again. You don't want them to be discouraged because they're a bunch of rotten scoundrels who are always getting discouraged and whining and complaining about everything. And if they would see that glory fade away, then surely they would really be bummed and, and start complaining and 
doing all the nasty things that they normally would be doing. But the reality was it was actually fading because it had to lead to Jesus Christ. He had to fulfill it, and he does. So it was fading, and Moses couldn't handle that. He didn't want to scare the people any more than they already were scared. But their minds were hardened, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Ladies, this is your prayer. Only through Christ is it taken away. Every time you are burdened for that loved one in your life who doesn't have the same joy, the same strength, the same power, the same hope that you have, go back to this verse. Only through Christ will it be taken away. You share the word. You provide opportunities. You pray. You're on your knees. But it is only through Christ that that veil is going to be taken away and that release yourself from guilt. Release yourself from trying to say it better. You're, how many times have you tried? And you realize, oh, I could have said this, I could have said that, I could have worded that, maybe you don't know enough, I didn't necessarily do apologetics, I should get a theology degree. You know, uh, oh, it, it makes you crazy. It can make you crazy. Thinking about if you only tried harder, they'll get it. Ladies, listen, repeat after me. It is only, it is only through, Christ through Christ that the veil is taken away. It's only through Christ. You have to pray. They need Christ. You present you try, you offer, you share, you pray, you get your prayer tribe around you. Everyone prays, and it is only through Christ. Now, I invited you all, and I'll invite you again tonight to have to have um, Passover Seder with me. Passover Seder is a beautiful um, meal together, and it, it, it's written in God's Word to, to celebrate it. It's an ordinance in God's Word, and so I enjoy doing that every year. It's on April 15th this year. I'll be sending out official invitations later, but I'm you want to come. Uh, April 15th. But I want you to listen to the words from um, a Jewish rabbi speaking about um, Christians, Christianity, his view on Christianity and why he rejects it. I went to a Passover Seder um, to an actual Reformed Jewish home. They're not believers in Christ. They, they just preserve the Passover as a tradition. And it was really hard not to cry through the whole thing. Weeping for how much they're missing. Yeah. And every little element that we would do, every little prayer, every little thing that we would do in that, uh, they didn't even know answers. Like, they didn't know. Why are we opening the door for Elijah? Why are, we, why are we holding up this bone? Why are we holding up this cracker? If you haven't done a say, you'll learn in a minute when you come to my house later and do it with me. But listen to what this Jewish rabbi said. He's trying to defend Judaism and why he doesn't accept Christianity. We Jews have rejected the Gentile Christian view Judaism, as shaped by our rabbis in Palestine, conceived of the body, that is our physical bodies, as a gift of God. And to this day, we regard the body as holy and wholesome, not as a prison from which to escape. Any inclination by man to commit a wrongdoing, we hold, resides not in his body, but in his heart or mind. And this inclination can be overcome by a change of heart or mind. Thus man, by himself, does possess... Indeed, the power to atone for his own misdeeds. And we Jews have in our Torah, the Old Testament, the guidance directing our hearts and minds to a righteous living. That's their veil. They obey the Torah and it'll all be fine. We have, we have 
in our body, our mind, our heart, the power to atone for our own misdeeds. They don't call it sin, by the way. <laughs> they don't. They call it misdeeds. That's a big Jewish thing. And we have in our Torah the guidance directing our hearts and minds to righteous living. Wow. That's... That's so the veil. Still, still That's what is. We'll, I'll open it up for, for comments about that later. But that is the veil. We have it in our own heart, in our own mind to overcome, to atone for our misdeeds. This is completely, obviously, contrary to Scripture. But listen, that is what God provided. God did provide the law to be obeyed, and over and over and over again in the Torah. We read Psalm 119. Read all of David's words. The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is right. It's like honey. They wanted it. They loved it. And how, as great as the law is, how much greater is the fact that Christ fulfilled every single letter of every law so the burden is not on me because it is impossible to keep the burden of the law. It's impossible. We can't. So Paul makes that clear and reminds us then here about that beautiful glory. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit is, I'm sorry, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now I want you to underline that word freedom. Now go back to the triumph. Maybe in your Bible it'll connect really well. Get a ruler out and connect that word freedom to the triumph because listen, Who's marching behind the victor? The slaves. The guys who were defeated. The guys who don't get to win. The guys who is in a row from death to death. It's the folks that are cheering that the victor is coming in to be celebrated. That's where the freedom is. That's where he's headed. It's everyone else in, in procession behind him that's dead. Oh, their knees are going to bow. Oh, their tongues are going to confess. But it's too late. The battle is done. We have to get that visual and that urgency in our mind as we're sharing our passion and our love and our faith. And we have to live it with such integrity, like Paul, so that we can say our conscience are clear. And if that means today you go home or before you even leave the parking lot, you get in the car and you pray, God, tighten me up. I don't want to blow my testimony and turn people away from you because of my bad attitude. Right? Tighten me up. I want to have integrity. I want to speak with simplicity. I want to have that kind of that passion and that, that truth from you. Not out of legalism. Not out of compulsion. But out of love, Paul says. He loves Jesus. He loves the word. And he loves, he says this over and over again. He says this in chapter 2. He says, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. Everything he did was motivated and empowered by that kind of love. And we all, verse 18, back to chapter 3, and we all with the unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, the triumph as he comes in, the glory of God, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, because we already have that glory now and we're being transformed to another. Why? Because they already talked about that in 1 Corinthians, right? Chapter 13 at the end, if you want to jump over there and just look at that real quick here with me. In chapter 13 at the end, he says, 
For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then what? Face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. We already have such beautiful glory and capacity for love and capacity for truth in God's word. How much more we have to look forward to in Christ's ultimate glory. And he says, from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. And here's what's so beautiful truth about that reminder. We have the spirit in us. This isn't something that's out there. This isn't something that ultimately will happen to us. We have it right now in us today. I can't think of a better reason to get on our knees in humility before God and repent of anything that's keeping you from living a life in clean conscience before God. Anything that you're allowing in your day, anything you're allowing in your routines, that's keeping you from living this life of victory and celebrating so that you can have that kind of testimony like Paul did with the people that he loved so much. Amen? Now, that's truly the alternative lifestyle. That's what that looks like. It's breathing in that aroma of life to life and not going along the same way that the world goes, but going God's way. That's what an alternative lifestyle is, right? Amen. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, once again, for the power of your word. Thank you for how it reminds us, how it changes us, how it causes us to repent, and it brings us great joy. Thank you for the strength and the comforting that you provide us in all of our affliction. We thank you for the affliction, the trials, the pressures that you bring and allow us in our life because it brings us to you and it brings us the ability to comfort others. I pray for these ladies now as we head on out, God, that that would renew inside of them a desire to love you even more, to know your word better, and to be women of prayer and passion for this world. Bless these women now in Jesus' name. And everyone sit. Hallelujah. Amen. All right, Miss Ruth, you have good things to say. I love it. What do you got? Well, when you were talking about uh, what the Jewish people believe currently mm -hmm. that goes they go right back to when Moses came off the mountain with the Ten Commandments and he says God wants you to obey these and they all say absolutely no problem we can do that they're still saying it to stay but that was the wrong answer yeah. the answer was no we cannot do this without you God we cannot do mm -hmm. any of this and certainly not perfectly right. and so there's still that Yeah, they're not looking Still not looking to the Messiah, right. according to what you just said there. Right, right. Also, the other thing when you were talking about how when we're telling people and telling people and telling people, um, and yet yeah, it's, it's Christ that brings them. As we continue to do that, we are actually trying to take the place of Christ. Right. And we have to be careful of that. Right. Very careful of that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's such a natural instinct because we have such love and compassion for our lost friends. We know the joy we have. We know what we have. We want it for them so badly. Yeah. But you, you, you can't make them. If you've worked with addicts, you can't make them get clean. They have to come to that. You can present, you can talk, you can share, you can create environments, you can do all the things. You have to release that. And what a beautiful, empowering thing to be able to do in Christ. 
and we have that in Christ. So good. Any questions? Any um, any other things that came up maybe in your discussion you want to ask about, Jeanette? We, we had a really good discussion about it. I think we resolved it. But oh, okay. Hand. Let's go. What do you got? Um, the James 15 passage. Oh, oh, that's right. And thank Therefore, you. confess your sins to each other oh, and yeah. pray for each other. James, so, give me the heading. James 516. Mm -hmm. The question was, what does this mean to, you know, well, what confess your sin? You know, it's sin. Yeah, we, we don't, don't do, do that. We don't yeah. confess to one another. Right? Yeah. Therefore, yes. confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Right. So um, Protestants who don't do that. The, the, um, right. The idea of the, of the denominations that have someone they confess to. Right, right. Confess to. So as in all things, we keep God's word in context with his entire word from the table of the contents to the maps, as my grandmother would say, although those two parts are. <laughs> Genesis to Revelation. It was a it was a hyperbole. Right. Um, but this is in the in the context of suffering. This is in the context of possible reasons for suffering. And we know from Christ's ministry that, yeah, you might be suffering because of sin. It could be your sin, it could be your parents' sin, or it could be because God wants this opportunity to be glorified, this is what Christ said. So James is addressing this, who would have been walking along with Jesus and seen a lot of this stuff go down. Um, he's, he's saying, hey, is anybody suffering? Let him pray. If you're, if you're cheerful, let him sing praise. Pray, you know, in a cheerful way, same thing. And when he comes to this point here and he says, and the prayer of a faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. It, and if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. In other words, if I'm in sin, if I have sin in my life, there's a possibility that the reason why I'm not well is because of my sin. That's the reality of, of how the Bible has been laid out for us. It doesn't. That's not an equivalency that every time I'm sick, oh, I must have sin in my life. Sometimes we're sin. Be, we have we're sickness because there's sin in the world, and the world from the get go has been broken. So it's all a matter of sin. It's either my personal sin or it's a sin because this is a sinful world. The point is be in relationship with each other, and have confession with each other. This doesn't mean that you have some better ability, Nadia. Amber, whoever, to go to the Father on every count, but it could mean in that moment you do. Maybe I'm not I'm not talking to God well. Maybe I'm not communicating to God well. Maybe you can help bolster my prayer. I mean, this goes perfectly along with what Paul's been saying here about prayer and with his point on prayer. And it's not because we're replacing Christ, because there's only one mediator between God and man. In other words, I don't need to go to somebody at a church in an official capacity in order to always have my sins forgiven. And I certainly don't need to, on my deathbed, have somebody come and make sure I'm prayed up and have every single sin covered. And he'll, you know, or she or someone will come over and pray over me, because what if I forgot to confess a sin? That, that is not outwitting Satan. You see, that's exactly how Satan outwits Right? Because he keeps us thinking, I'm never going to be enough. I'll always forget a sin because I can't even remember where I parked my car. How am I going to remember every single sin I possibly committed and have them all confessed up? So when James says here, therefore confess your sins to one another, the idea is live in that type of community that I can go to you, Amber, and say, I, I got to confess. I, I'm having some issues here. I'm sick and it might be because of my sin. Uh, would you pray with me? I need some prayer. It's not because she has magical power of prayer to make something happen in my life. The Holy Spirit's the one who does that. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. The Holy Spirit might prompt me to go to you, 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 or you, or you, and confess with you and have that community. 
But that's not the requirement, right? We begin our entire relationship with Jesus Christ on the confession of my own mouth directly to him. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, there is no mediator. That's me going right to God. And so if I'm going to confess my sins to one another, that's not because that does something always. That's because that's part of being in community. That's exactly what Paul's been talking about. We have a community. You kick that guy out if he's sitting in your community, give him over to Satan. That's part of a, a corporate decision. That's not one guy on rogue making a decision. That's confessing in the group. Hey, we need to do this. And we also have to understand this word of confessing in Greek literally means to tell. It's to tell. And we think of the word of confession like in a Catholic sense, like going to confession in that sense. But the word is actually just means tell. Tell your sins. Talk about it. And again, kind of back to the whole um, example I gave about being in recovery groups and things like that. There's healing to be found with or without Christ, to be honest, in just speaking <laughs> your sins. And admit, what's the very first of the 12 steps? Admission. Say it. Tell it. There's healing in that alone. Now, without Christ, there's not ultimate healing. That's only temporary and it's baseless, like I made the case for at the beginning of this message. So um, a great question. And it's a stumbling block, especially for people who have a strong Catholic background that um, feel the need to be in the only way that they can really, truly be forgiven is if they got somebody else praying for them. And so I can see why that passage right there, um, especially if you have a Catholic background, mm -hmm. might be a stumbling block and think, oh, I have to have somebody else pray for me. You might, but it's not a requirement. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. There's my thoughts on it. It's probably what you came up with as well in your group. They're kind of completed. Yeah, very similar. We talked about accountability. You guys are smart. Yeah, accountability. Because that community absolutely is accountability. Accountability. And, lift, and like you said, lifting each other up in prayer and stuff. So if you're keeping everything to yourself, you know, for, you know, and all, a lot of my Christianity, it was just God and me, God and me. Mm. And I didn't understand the whole benefits and understanding mm -hmm. of how God wants us to be in community yeah. that was very crucial and it was missing that piece. You know, you know so that's huge. It's, it is huge. realize that when we do that, then God starts to work the healing too. It, There's, it's all because the secular world seems to have like a leg up in that area because there, there, there's a lot of pride and rightfully so in a sense, um, like the 12 steps or whatever programs, because that's what they're built on is that. And then Christians, we get we have like this shame thing that comes in because we feel like we're supposed to have been living this really great, holy life. Mm -hmm. And um, the problem will come is if we aren't able to cultivate in our community here um, what I like to call the avocado-worthy model of living with each other. So, for example, um, Christine, I love avocados. Maybe you love, does anyone else love avocados like I do? You? Okay, so let me test that. If you say you love avocado, I'm going to give you a test. If I have an avocado and you're over at my house and I'm making myself avocado toast or whatever, and I slice up and it's a perfect avocado, and I turn to you and I say, would you like some of my avocado? What is your proper only response to me you would give me some of your avocado <laughs> wow thank you it's because you're avocado worthy if you say sure i'll be like yeah you're not getting my avocado <laughs> you don't deserve it sure what kind of response is that like i didn't just hand you a brick sure i'll take your brick no it's an avocado they're precious and they're kind of expensive so the same we kind of we cultivate that here so that when we share with each other, people aren't just like, mm, uh-huh. 
we, we, we expect a relationship with each other here that when we're sharing, you're going to be holding me precious to you. Value me. I'm going to value you so that when you are, are nervous to share, you'll know she's going to value me. She's not going to judge me. There's not going to be shame. She's not going to give me a lecture unless it's the 14th time and I really need it. <laughs> <laughs> but we're avocado worthy. And so we create that environment here where we can trust each other to be truthful and be honest and call each other out like we've been talking about. And that's what facilitates my willingness to then say, I need to confess to you. I need to confess. And we did mention that, that it, it all also deals with how transparent we can be with the people that we're around. Right. Some people. And it's, yeah, and you learn, and you learn. Who and you learn. You do learn. <laughs> and, the, and the only way to learn, honestly, and it's tough, difficult, is to do it once and test it. And um, but that's, that's beautiful in, in the community of Christ, to test that. And then even if that person responds poorly, Give them the grace to, to respond again and go back to them and say, I really risk talking to you. And then, you know, whatever it is, we have to be willing to engage well because our society is so filled now, especially with canceling everybody. Yes. You blew it, you're out. <laughs> and Christ didn't do that to me. Thank God. I would have been out probably, you know, a, a few seconds after I was born, <laughs> typically speaking. <laughs> so... Good stuff. Any other questions? That's a good one. I have one. You were talking about up here, um, Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians one fifteen. You were talking about uh, <laughs> Paul was being accused of vacillating or whatever. I didn't buy what you said about about that he's being accused, where are you getting that from? Oh, from the rest of Second Corinthians. If you read on further in Second Corinthians, you'll see a little more of some of the dialogue that was happening. That's no, still not. Okay, <laughs> when we get there, you can, we can discuss I'm it further. Like, <laughs> I'm like, I don't see that at yeah. all. Yeah. Um, I see it more as he is just sharing mm -hmm. his heart yeah. and what he wanted to do, but God said no, mm -hmm. and he said that for good reason, because yeah. God always has good reason. Right. That's right. how I see that. Yeah. I don't see where, I mean, that could have happened, but right. I don't see yeah. it there yeah. at all. The other one is the whole thing of the suffering uh, that we enter in with the suffering of Christ, um, that it does all these things that you're saying about it, shaking us up and putting us into order. I always have seen that, and, and other scriptures, I believe, back this up that we enter into his suffering because that's our salvation, not because we enter into it in a physical sense. It's more of a, you know, a more, not, not so literal. I guess that's how I'm saying it. Yeah. It's not as literal as it seemed to be coming across. For me. Yeah, so for me, what I, the analogy I was trying to make is in suffering, it helps me to straighten up my thought process. Mm -hmm and uh, clarifies and and i maybe i could have used a better word picture for that but i was trying to get that word picture of everything kind of lining right. up in that toy box so for me that's how i experienced trials some of them that i've gone through is that it really just tightened things up and orders them out like genesis you know to revelation um it, it gets things back in order because when i'm in suffering i can tend to be living in a fog i can be cloudy like i said putting thoughts and it's, it's thick and i don't feel it it's orderly but suffering has a tendency to bring me to shake it and bring me back into order. Um, and it's more of a, that's my personal way of expressing how I relate to suffering and how it has helped me in my life, uh, bring me back into an, an orderliness. That was all that that 
was it's just my personal way of how I experience suffering and bring me back into an orderly way of thinking, tight, tightening up my theology in a sense. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Right. right questions, ladies. Enjoy your study, and don't forget to take your mite uh, and your bag. And you can, if the, the little diamonds are very small, <laughs> so you might want to open up your zippy bag and just press it into the clay or just drop it into the zippy bag itself. Um, so it's right there for you. <laughs> and enjoy making those. Look forward to seeing your pictures when you start posting those online. <laughs>